I want to just share with you, ask you a question. Um, we say that the Lord's coming is near. Who believes that? Okay, now, what is the evidence that we believe that? Is the question. Now, where I grew up on the streets, where I grew up, we grew up on the streets uh, with the men. And I wouldn't use the word before they used before that. So there's a fine balance between what God has given to us, the resources we have. We each have resources. Time, we have money, we have many things. How do our, the way we use our resources does it testify to the fact that we believe Jesus is coming? That is the question. So it's easy to say the Lord is coming and, and we worship him, but what do we do? What is the mission of the church? For me, the mission of the church is to take the gospel to the world. We must believe this, that there will be no lazy people in heaven. The Lord laid down his life for sinners out there. And the church existence, the purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to take the gospel to us. And each one of us, the Lord has given us spiritual gifts. He's endowed us with so much. And we used to, we need to use that to further the Lord's kingdom. If we do not do that, my brother, my sisters, the Lord will say, I know you not. That is the reality. Now, I'm in the publishing department. I've been there all my life, and during this month uh, alone, we took a trip to Bloemfontein. We had to bury my stepmother, and uh, on, the, on the route, I think I shared about easily 50 books. So part of our household, in my budget, I budget every month, and I make sure that I have literature that I will place in the hands of someone. You see, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not all, all work, Ellen White says, is to get the message into the hands of the people. And she says when people start seeing what is happening in the world, they will read and they will recognize and then they will come and accept the faith. In Zechariah, there's a prophecy that says ten men will grab one Jew by the hem of the by the hem of his garment and say, "We have heard that God is with you." Who's the Jews? That's us. People will come and they will acknowledge that God is with us. And so, one of the initiatives, in fact, at the general conference, it was voted. Now, the the, the great controversy will be the missionary book of the year that will be distributed in the next two years. And if there ever there is a book that we need to get and place in the hands of the people, it is the, 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 the great controversy. Now, I have this copy here. It's called Love Under Fire. And this is an adaptation of the great controversy, with, and it's a modern language. Now, I know people are all hyped up about the 1844 edition. Forget that. We need to get the message out. If you stuck with the 1844 edition and other editions, that's fine. But we need to get the message out. And I have nothing 
against the book that has been adapted and where the message is tailored in a beautiful language and we give it to people. People are not concerned about that. We need to get the message out to them. And this is one of my um, missions when I go to the island, there's just under 5,000 people. I want to make sure that in every home, place a book like this, Love Under Fire, the great controversy. So I want to give you an opportunity. If you really believe that Jesus is coming, put your money where your mouth is and invest. Soon the money we have in the bank will be useless. I can tell you that. And there's a fine balance about how do I spend the resources that I have that I wait. Because if Jesus is going to come now in the next two months, whatever investments I have as useless, I can't use it for his kingdom and for his work anymore. I want to challenge you. These books, they are 18 in a box. As a noni sabad wat jy te Plan. Talk to your elder. And uh, I'll leave the book with him and you can, you can work with him. And I want to encourage you to give out these books and uh, make sure that we get the message into the home, homes of the people. So that when Jesus comes, there will be joy. Your joy. I don't see a watch in the church, so... Uh, But I want to share with you today a message from the book of Exodus. Let us pray again. Father, thank you once again that you brought me here safely. I pray, Lord, that you will hide me behind the cross, that you'll take all, away all my sin, and that you will speak through me the message that you've laid on my heart, that this message indeed may touch every life here today. And Lord, I pray that it may bring forth a change in our lives and that we will truly go from this church with a desire, um, the commitment to not only live close to you, but to do what you have asked us to do. We will be very careful, Lord, at the end of this service to give you all the honor and the glory for what will happen here today. For we ask in Jesus' name once again. Amen. I did, I made a book of, I made a study of the book of Exodus, and I actually want to preach the book of Exodus in one sermon, I'm going to attempt to do it, and I've divided it up into four, four parts, four points, you can actually divide the book of Exodus into five uh, categories, and I want to share with you from that book today as I, um, as the Lord has blessed me. Now, I've entitled my sermon, uh, Today, uh, the God who knows and the God who cares. Now, if you look at the book of Exodus, in a real sense, the book of Exodus is actually the first book of the Bible. The word Exodus means exit or departure, and it's an appropriate uh, title because the book details the journey of the Israelites from Egypt to Canaan. Uh, from Egypt to Canaan. In the book of Genesis, God creates a world. But in the book of Exodus, he creates a people. And he does this creating by delivering Abram's descendants from Egyptian oppression. It's interesting that when the Israelites, or when 
the sons Jacob when when they are, when they arrive in in Egypt they were about seventy. Now in that time the census they only counted men. When they leave, there's about six hundred and thirty thousand men. And so God starts with an oppressed group of slaves in Egypt. And at the end of the book, they are a free people. At the end of the book of Exodus, they are a free people with their own leadership and system of worship. The situation of the Israelites is seemingly hopeless. By natural means, if you look at them, there is no hope. The people are oppressed slaves in Egypt. They live in abject poverty. They have no rights. Their infants are murdered. They are abused and beaten. They work long hours. They are oppressed. And so the Bible says, and the Pharaoh died. But another one came. And he, according to the record, was more cruel. He multiplied everything. And so if you look at Genesis 12, verse 1, what is very interesting, the Lord makes a promise unto Abraham. And the promise is, I will give you a land, and I will make your seed like the sand of the sea, the stars of the heaven. But when you look at this Israelite situation, the Lord now will deliver on that promise, but He reverses the promise. First, they are fruitful and multiply before the land is given. This is the beauty of the gospel for me, that when God makes a promise, He can deliver it in any way, and we, need it. we, we, we shouldn't predict and we shouldn't say to God, God does it in His way and in His time. And the Pharaoh, in verse 9, recognizes the growth. And then the depression starts. Yes, those men were busy in those times. The hospital was full. They multiplied. The oppression did not hinder the growth. I want you to, 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 to be aware of that. God said to Abram, he gave, him a, he gave him a promise. And the Lord blessed his people. And so, we must be clear that growth is the major reason for the enslavement of God's people. Growth is a threat to others and it leads to oppression. Ellen White says we must be constantly growing in habit, in labor, in manners, and in spirit. And when you grow, whether it's in the corporate world, in your work, wherever you, you grow individually, you become a threat to people. And oppression takes place. Now oppression can be criticism in many ways. And so the question this morning is, are you growing? 
But you may say, I'm not oppressed. So maybe you're not oppressed because you are not growing. And so we come to Exodus 2, verse 23, a crucial passage that I need to read and share with you. As they are oppressed, the Lord says to them, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt, then the children of Israel, the king, uh, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died, then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and the cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So this passage covers past, present, and future, and it actually ignites hope. All this oppression that Israel has experienced have gone on for many years. Their inner feelings have been so affected that they cry out for help. And the Lord, the Bible, the biblical record says the Lord hears their cries. It does not end there. God hears when we cry out to him. God clearly knows what is going on in Egypt. And the Bible says, and God remembers the covenant that he has made. Now the word remember in the Hebrew mind is an action, is a, is a verb. Is a, we say we remember, when we remember we call the past to the present. Isn't that so? Then we have to make, take an action. We say we remember the Sabbath day, and then what do we do on the Sabbath? We keep it holy. And so in the Hebrew mind, when God says he remembers, they expect him to do something. So God has to remember the covenant that he made with Abraham, and he has to fulfill it. And so there are two groups in oppression. There must be the oppressor, and the oppressed. They must be Israelite and Egyptian. What are you this morning? Are you Israelite or are you Egyptian? Some of us can become Egyptians right into God's church. Isn't that so? We will abuse our power, we oppress people. I want to say to you this morning, any problem, whether it's self-inflicted, God knows about it. It can be financial, it can be a relationship, it can be an addiction, it can be a weakness. God knows about it. Cry out unto the Lord in your slavery. He is a God who knows. He is a God who remembers and we will sin. Soon see how God delivers. And so the first point I want to make is cry out unto the Lord like the Israelites. God is aware of your situation. God is aware of your condition. You know, I would rather go to heaven ashamed than go to hell with dignity. I would rather go to heaven of people knowing my challenges and my problems and I've confessed it and I seek help 
then going to Yahweh's dignity. The second point about Exodus, Exodus 3, chapters 3 to 13. Those are the chapters I will quickly cover uh, in point number 2. First, they cry unto the Lord, and God hears them now. Point number 2, God acts to deliver, and God will deliver in such a way there will be no doubt that indeed He is the God of gods. But look, how, look at the process that God goes about in delivering his people. First, he calls a leader. And who is that leader? That leader is Moses. Moses on this particular day goes a little bit further as he tends the sheep. And he finds himself close to the mountain. And he sees what? A burning bush. Now the mountain is a very significant metaphor in the story. The mountain is a place of godly revelation. It is a place we will find in the Bible where the covenant is given, where the law is given, where census is taken. It is from the mountain where Israelite, the Israelites depart for Canaan. And it's so important that in Galatians 4, 24 and 5, Paul also refers to it. And then there's fire. In Exodus 19, we find that God descends on the mountain with fire. In, during Pentecost, there was fire. And uh, some associate fire with judgment, but we know that fire also represents God, God's presence. And so God calls Moses. Before God calls Moses, he reveals himself unto Moses through a burning bush. And Moses has no doubt that God is, it is God speaking to him. And so when God calls him, the messenger questions God. The messenger feels unworthy and overwhelmed. And God reassures the messenger. And he provides answers to the question that Moses has. And the beauty about what I see here in Moses is the meekness. He feels unworthy. And brothers and sisters, young people, this is a universal characteristic of people that are called by God. If you are going to succeed, you need to feel unworthy. And in your unworthiness, you will completely depend upon God for your success. And so God says to Moses, tell them, I am sent you. In Genesis 15, when God appears to Abram, he says, I am the Lord who calls you. Now, the I am in the Hebrew language is a verb which indicates eternal existence and self-sustenance. In the Old Testament, there was always competition among who has the, whose God is the mightiest and the power, uh, most powerful. And so God is saying to Moses, tell the Israelites, I am. Was given to the Israelites as comfort and as assurance in their oppression that the one that is calling them has the power and the ability to free them. And I believe that we need to Believe that the one that has called us to sit right here in this church can free us from anything. He is powerful and he is mighty. And the time has come 
that we take off our shoes of unbelief and realize the powerful God that we serve. Unless we do that, God cannot work powerfully in and through us. You know, we sing, trust and obey. Well, there's no other way. But when we leave church, we, we complain with the unbelievers over the petrol price. Call the Lord for your tank. I mean, I, I bought a big vehicle and I got a shock when I came to the, I said to the guy, Philip, and he, when he gave me the amount, I had to look twice. And uh, I must say, it, it was a lot of money, but the Lord provided, and I said, yeah, it's, uh, it's maybe good that the Lord has allowed us to go to the island. There they say, with oh, the tank, I can uh, travel for three months. With what? <laughs> Petrol stations is only open on a Thursday there, Brother Lynx. <laughs> no COVID, no crime. There's one guy in prison there and he goes home every evening. He was locked up for drunk driving, so yeah. So the Lord is good. We say, we serve a God that has a cattle on a thousand hills, but we don't even have airtime on our phones. Sometimes we become an embarrassment for the gospel. Now God is going to deal with Egypt. He's going to deal with Pharaoh. He uses a rod. You know the scepter in the Bible? The scepter was a very powerful. When a king had a scepter in his hand, he ruled with a scepter. And so God gives Moses a rod. And God is going to also rule. He's going to, he's going to do wonderful things. Israel may be weak. They may be slaves, but they have a big God. What I like about what I like about what Moses does in verse chapter 4 verse 16 he leaves his family with his father-in-law and we find that Moses has a high regard for his family he's 80 years at this stage and but he goes to his father-in-law and he asks his permission imagine he's 80 years old and he goes to his father-in-law and he asks his permission to go you see he's lived a long time with him and in his culture they had a high regard for parents. You see, parental authority doesn't stop when we, our children leave our home. We, we, we always stay their parents and we always have to play a role and have an influence in their lives. Yes. When I was younger, the kids would say, private, do not enter. I say, private, do not enter when you pay the bond yourself. I pay the bond they say you don't get obedient children anymore, you only get obedient parents. Moses is seeking the blessing of his father-in-law, then he leaves because he's going to leave his family behind and later you will find that his family with his father-in-law will join him later. And so we see here the structure that God, how God deals. Now first God calls Moses when God calls Moses, then Moses in chapter 4, 27 to 9, he goes to Aaron and his brother and he says, God has called me and he gives him an explanation of what has happened and he convinces Aaron. And when he convinces Aaron, in verse 30, now Aaron goes to the leaders, he goes to the elders and he says, listen here, the Lord has called my brother. 
And this is what he's going to do. And when the elders are convinced, then they call the people together. And it would be wise for people that feel they have a message from God is to follow the structure. First convince your family that you have a ministry before you come to the church. And if your family is not behind you, it's not time to go to Egypt. There are too many of us that call themselves and we have these beautiful ministries that we convince ourselves that the Lord has called us to do and when it flops, we want to blame the church and many other people we haven't been supported. I marvel when I look at this program, Idols. They have what they call there the wooden, wooden mic. Ne? Now, honestly, my brother, someone is going to tell you you cannot sing. Someone in your family is going to be honest with you to tell you you cannot go to idols. This is not idols material. I mean, we must be honest with our loved ones. Don't encourage them to and say, beautiful, wonderful. Be honest and be open and be practical and say, near. I remember when I was very young, uh, I was actually at Riverside and that's where my musical career was stopped abruptly. <laughs> We had, I'm not going to mention the teacher's name, we had a teacher and they used to have the piano there and then we used, she used to say, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, then we have to repeat that and as we came through, the boys came through then they were those that she felt that had potential to this side and then she said, not you, go, you can go and play soccer and uh, I eventually ended up in the soccer field and made a good career out of that and I'm still playing today at the age of 62. But that's not my gift. And we need to be honest with each other. God has given us gifts. And we need to exercise and stay within our spiritual gifts. And then we will be happy and effective. Because the Lord has given us that gift for the purpose. Exodus 5 verse 2. Who is this, who is this Lord? Who is this God that I should obey Him? I do not know the Lord. I will not listen to Him and I will not let Israel go. You know why Pharaoh asked this question? He was a God himself. And he's never heard about the God of Israel. He says, who's this God? And so God has to then to reveal himself. God has to show Pharaoh who he is. And Pharaoh will get overwhelming evidence of who the I am is. Moses and Pharaoh in chapter 5 verse 20 goes and he shares, but then these people get upset with Moses and they complain. And so in verse 22, Moses questions the Lord. And the Lord says to him in chapter 6 verse 1, Now you shall see. Verse 6 says, I am the Lord your God. You know, God could get upset with Moses and with the Israelites at this stage, but he doesn't do that. He's a God of love. He gives them a few promises. Then in chapter 6, he says, I am the Lord your God. I will honor my covenant. I will rescue you. I have heard your groaning. I will set you free from the Egyptians. I will redeem you. I will bring you into the promised land. I am the Lord. I wish I had time to go into all the plagues, but then the Lord has to prove to, to Pharaoh 
who he really is, because God has now come up against the most powerful nation and the most powerful leader of the then known world. The sun to them, they believe it could not be destroyed and it was the main source of life. And it, when it becomes dark, it throws their lives into chaos and it makes the Pharaoh rethink his theology. And we find that the plagues grow in intensity and in discomfort and it climax in the death of the firstborn. The report comes from the other side. There's no mosquitoes. There's no darkness. The sun is shining where God's people are. For me, as I made this study more important, the reason why, why did the Lord have to do ten plagues? Was it necessary? The reason He gives, He allows the length of the process is important for it gives Israel the opportunity to begin to understand the power of God. Remember, they were slaves. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They were abused there to work. And so God takes them out. He takes him on a route in chapter 13, 17. He takes him on a route. And he doesn't want to discourage them because they have no weapons. And he takes them on a route where they are quite safe. Remember at this stage they have now collected their provident fund from the Egyptians. So they were rich. They had money. They collected the Lord. The Bible says the Lord opened their hearts. And the route that God takes them encourages Pharaoh to follow them. And I want you to remember they are slaves, they are weak, they are afraid, they have been abused for a long time, and they see this mighty army descending upon them, where they are in a corner, literally the seas on the one side, and the mountain on the other side. And then, chapter 14, verse 13. There are four things that happens there, and I want you to maybe write that down or just make a note of that, how to deal with fear. The first instruction is do not be afraid. So the Bible says, Jesus says to them, if you're afraid, do not be afraid. <laughs> that, that is, I don't know how to explain that. You see, fear disarms you and it makes you irrational. You may think the worst will happen, but God says, do not be afraid. When we fear, it is evidence of unbelief, and we reject our trust in God when we are fearful. And so God says, fear not. And then the second instruction is, stand still. Stand fast. You see, when fear disappears, then we can stand still. And then the Lord gives him a promise. These Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. And then the Lord makes another promise. I will fight for you. But it wasn't necessary. God is their general. The champion of champion, he will fight for them. Vies jelle 
net stil. No complaining, no moaning, no crying, no shouting. War cries will mean nothing. It is even within their silence that Israel will behold the victory that God will bring. And what does God do with the Egyptians? He finishes them in such a way that no one can doubt that the Israelite God is the greatest, the I am is the most powerful. And when the Israelites sees the Egyptian bodies wash out on the beach, another type of fear grips them. It embraces them a fear of a holy and a powerful God. You see, God can remove the Egyptians. The problems that you now have, God can remove it that you will never have it again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Oh yes, the poem says, if we doubt, we don't trust. But if we trust, we don't doubt. Trust him when the dark doubts assail thee. Trust him when thy strength is small. Trust him when, no, when to trust him simply seems the hardest thing of all. Trust him then through the cloud and sunshine. All thy cares upon him cost till the storms of life are over and the trusting days are past. Trust him, trust him, trust him. They cry out unto the Lord. The Lord delivers them. And in point number three, God now makes a covenant with them in chapter 19. He calls them. He meets with them in Sinai. And the commandments are given to them. Was the commandments always there? The Ten Commandments, was it always there? Now why didn't God give them the commandments in the beginning? You see, God first empowers them. He sets them free and now He gives them a com the commandments. And the commandments should be a relationship between Him. It's not something we depend on. We don't keep the commandments to be, to be saved. God gives them now the commandments and the commandments is the conditions of the marriage that will take place. The commandments is there to protect them. To protect their relationships, to protect them from each other. To keep the people together from behaviors that will not tear them apart. And that's why the commandments are given. We keep the commandments because we love God, not because we want to be saved. And so, the fourth point is... God wants to live amongst his people. Chapter 23, 14 to 17, he now says to them, make me a sanctuary. But before that, there are festivals. There's three festivals that is mentioned in the book of Exodus. About, there are many others. There's the unleavened bread, there's the feast of harvest, and then there's the feast of ingathering. And this was a time of great joy and happiness. And parties is biblical. Isn't that so? In some cultures it's important we, we celebrate, especially in the colored culture. Isn't that so? So when we, when we celebrate something, it's biblical. There's joy what God has done to us. And also it was to, to make them, it, it was there to help them to remember what God has done in the past. That's why I got a Pentecostal pastor friend. He says he believed the Lord is a colored. Because he was at every part in the New Testament. Anyway, so we should celebrate, but the center point should always be what Jesus has done for us. It's not about the food. 
But, but it's what has God has done for us. And so in Exodus 23, 20 to 23, he promises them, I will send you an angel to protect you. I don't, want, I don't have time to spend on how God has provided for the Israelites. They were, historians say they were close to 4 million people. To feed them, their clothes didn't. God provided for them every day for 4 million people. Just think about that. And so he says, do not resist me. I will destroy your enemies. Do not serve foreign gods. I will provide for your needs. And so they have to build this place for the Lord. And I want you to study the sanctuary message. There are things in, this, in, in, this, in, in the sanctuary like the ark, very important items. Within the ark is the covenant, the Ten Commandments, that is the relationship. All the symbolism is very, very powerful. It, it points to a relationship that God wants to have with him. There's the bread, a symbolizes that God can provide. There's the lamp that indicates that God's presence is always with us. The lamp always had to burn. I've written here in Afrikaans, die teenwoordigheid van God in licht en vier, hy roep die brandende bos en die vier kolom wat hulle s'nachts warm gehou het. Die altyd brandende bos verteenwoordig God, die feit dat God sê, dat God altyd wakker is en dat hy waak hou oor sy kinders. Die wat met God loop is nooit in die duisternis nie. Israel now has got a tabernacle where they can go and worship God. You know, remember they had to build, they were forced to build, forced labor, but now they can build a place for God according to His way and to, according to His plan, and they can express themselves. Look at the tabernacle, how it was constructed. Everything of the best. Daar wat niks van kerstcrusaders hier ingekom he. And I'm, I'm glad that you have a beautiful temple that we must give God always the best. When we come to church, we must look our best. We must give him our best. His building must be the best. Look at the color scheme that God has put. God was very particular. And so, the Israelites, we remember when they came down, when Moses came down from the mountain in chapter 32, they made a, a golden calf. The golden calf in those times were a way of people expressing themselves to their God. And, and because Moses stayed away so long, the, the people felt they wanted to worship God and they asked Aaron then to make uh, this thing. This golden calf. And God punishes them. The Bible says in verse 20, he had to destroy the calf and they had to drink the dust. 3,000 of them died. A plague came. But the amazing thing for me is I studied the book of Exodus. After all of this, still there was no change. And for me the turning point is Exodus 33, verse 1, where the Lord says, then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go from here, and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to which I swore to Abram, 
Isaac and Jacob to your descendants. And then he says in verse 2, I will send my angel before you and I will drive up the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and Jebusite. Go, verse 3, to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will go, I will not go with you. So God has tried to deal with them, he's punished them, but I still don't want to listen. And he says, you can go, I will make provision, but I will not go with you. The fact that they will lose God's presence terrifies them. And in verse 7, Moses then puts up a tent of meeting. And anybody that wants to speak to the Lord can then go and speak to him in the tent of, me of meeting. My brothers and my sisters, to lose God's presence in our lives is the most terrible thing that can happen to any one of us. Does God's presence mean as much to you as it meant to the Israelites? Moses himself declares in verse 14 and 15, If you do not go with us, I will not go. Moses realizes that it is through God's presence that they have come thus far, and their success lies in the presence of God. The cloud was God's watch. The cloud was their shield by day and their shelter by night. This cloud was a sign, it was a reminder of God's continual presence in their midst. Where's God's cloud today? Do you regularly spend time in meeting with God? In your, where is your tent of meeting? You know, we as Adventists, we are very powerful and we believe in the word. We have the truth. But this truth sometimes makes us arrogant and we're going to be lost because of that. And I believe I've looked at a few uh, and I believe that we should have the compassion of the Catholics. We should have the joy of salvation of the Pentecostals and when people meet us they will see truly that we have, we have been redeemed, we are happy. They cram up our bitter vegetarians. <laughs> we need to have the order and discipline of the new apostolics. We need to have the humility of the Amish. And the simplicity of the Moravians. Oh yes, we need the prosperity of the Jews. The sacrificial spirit of the Buddhists and the Hindus. And the consistency, especially in the prayer lives of the Muslims. Oh, and above all, we need the willing feet of the Jehovah's Witness. I say to you, I must have the Savior with me. Fanny Crosby was blind. She was a very independent woman. But she said, I must have the Savior with me. For I dare not walk alone. God's presence comes with forgiveness of sin and a change of heart. And I want to say unto you this morning, cry out unto the Lord. He will deliver. He wants to have a relationship with you. 
and he wants to dwell with you. I, 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 as I studied this book, I said to myself, Lord, I want to pray and communicate as Moses did. And I want to live in such a way that there will be nothing between me and God. And I want to follow God's cloud of presence. I want to follow God's cloud until that cloud changes and become a coach that will take me to my eternal home in glory. May the Lord bless us. Amen.